Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From across Louisiana, we're out to lunch with Peter Raschuti, Stephanie Regal, and Christian Maida. Peter Raschuti is Tulane University's Freeman School of Business Professor of Finance. Stephanie Regal is editor of the Baton Rouge Business Report. Christian Maida is publisher and editor of The Current. It's business Louisiana style. Hi, and welcome to Out to Lunch Louisiana. I'm Peter Raschuti in New Orleans. I'm Christian Mater in Lafayette. I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge. As Louisiana reopens and we continue to navigate the fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic, Christian, Peter, and I are taking a weekly statewide look at what's happening in the world of business and finance. And it's not all doom and gloom out there. There are some businesses who are thriving in this current downturn. Today, we're going to find out about two of them. Jennifer John's local company, Pang Wangle, is doing gangbusters. Pang Wangle makes an eco-friendly line of women's clothing that comes with a special superpower. It's bug resistant. For some reason, which we're going to find out, the quarantine has given Pang Wangle a national profile. While everyone else has been holed up working from home or not working at all, Meg Arsenault has found herself run off her feet at her bike shop. Bicycles have become a hot item during the pandemic, and we're going to find out why. Before we get to that, there's no two ways about it. This is a tough time to be in business. There is help available to get through this rough patch in the form of business loans, uh, even grants. Uh, Some are through federal agencies, some are through state agencies, and there's money available from city governments in New Orleans and Baton Rouge and Lafayette. Getting a hold of this money is not easy. Uh, Typically, businesses benefit from being a member of a business alliance to help them navigate the maze of regulation and and bureaucracy. But some businesses are too small to join alliances, like the Chamber of Commerce. For those small, owner-operated businesses, getting access to financial expertise is very, very challenging. Uh, You might be a great hairdresser, house painter, or plumber, but that doesn't mean you have great or even any business skills. Now imagine having the added problem of not being able to speak English. And that's the position many Latinx self-employed people find themselves today in Louisiana. And that's why there's an organization called El Centro. El Centro provides business assistance for Latinx entrepreneurs. The executive director of El Centro is Lindsay Navarro. Lindsay, welcome out to lunch. Hi, thank you, Peter. It's such a pleasure to be here and truly an honor. It's hard for me to not fangirl (laughs) (laughs) in this moment. I I love this show and the opportunity to share. I think what our organization is doing is, it means a lot to me. And and tell me what the footprint looks like. Uh, uh, Are you... uh, in uh, parts of Louisiana, all of Louisiana? Yeah, so we're based out of the greater New Orleans area. Um, To be honest, we've got a partnership with the Mexican consulate. And so I've traveled as far as Lafayette, um, as far as Lake Charles, um, up to Baton Rouge as well. And we even have customers uh, who call us all the way out from Shreveport. So uh, we're small but mighty. And the reaches is quite broad across the state just because the need is so great. 
um, for this resource uh, within the community. Lindsay, what is the, the number one question you're getting from these entrepreneurs during this time? I think a lot of them are looking for capital. I think a lot of them are not sure how they're going to weather this storm. Um, what we face, a lot of folks, uh, what we're really seeing are the number of business owners who think they have employees, but realize that they have independent contractors. And so when it comes to being eligible for some of this funding, they don't have the payroll um, to really meet the needs of the company. And um, so we've seen companies as small as, you know, one person shows and then folks who are, are working in construction who have 10 to 15 independent contractors. And so when they're applying for funding like the PPP, they don't quite meet the payroll requirements. Uh, and a lot of them had no idea this even existed. A lot of them felt that this wasn't meant for them. Um, they weren't sure if they had to go to the bank or if they had to go to the government. And I think within the Latinx community or the Hispanic community, we have a fear for government. Um, and the responsibility, I think, of, of even committing to a loan um, it can be very daunting for some of these folks. And so when, uh, you know, one thing, the application and the application wasn't actually translated to Spanish until two weeks ago. Uh, and so uh, while the government was touting this uh, opportunity, it really wasn't uh, language accessible for the community at large. And a lot of folks didn't feel that they were gonna meet the requirements, uh, meet the, the credit threshold either. And they didn't even know where to start. So um, it's, it's been interesting to have to educate the community and work with them. And so we work with uh, Latinx individuals hand in hand, um, individuals and entrepreneurs in accessing that capital, helping them complete those applications. At first it was the EIDL um, and helping them gain access to the portal. Uh, we created a YouTube video in Spanish uh, that actually taught people step-by-step -step how to fill out the application. Um, we even created a how-to guide. And then what was unfortunate was that a couple of weeks later, the portal was closed. and so. Um, I don't think people could rush to it fast enough. So now uh, we're trying to connect folks to the PPP and a lot of the Latinx community, a lot are ICIN holders, which means that they're taxpayers, um, but they may not have authorized work permits, so they can't work as employees. So they then by default are qualified as independent contractors. And so a lot of them didn't see themselves as eligible for some of this funding. So I think um, educating them in that aspect in and of itself was, you know, demystifying this. Lindsay Navarro is the executive director of El Centro. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us on Out to Lunch, Louisiana. Thank you, Peter. It was a pleasure. You're listening to Out to Lunch, Louisiana with Peter Raschuti in New Orleans, Christian Mader in Lafayette, and I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge. Before Hurricane Katrina blew me and my family to Baton Rouge, I was a journalist and news reporter at WWL-TV in New Orleans. One of my colleagues there was fellow journalist Jennifer Johns. And Jennifer joins us now. Jen, it's great to see you again. Welcome to Out to Lunch, Louisiana. Great to see you. I love the show. Thank you. Well, I'm still a journalist, but you are smart. You got out when you could. <laughs> You are now the founder and CEO of a company and one with an intriguing name, no less, Peng Wengel. So the story goes that while you were out in the field reporting, you were so sick of getting bitten up by mosquitoes and other bugs that you created a line of bug-resistant clothing for women. Scarves, wraps, pants, hats, and bags that are not only stylish and lightweight for life outdoors in the South, but they're also impregnated with a safe and long-lasting bug repellent. Things apparently have been going pretty well since you launched the company at the end of 2017. And then 
along came the pandemic COVID-19. But instead of decimating your business like so many others, it somehow got you coverage in the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, New York Lifestyle Magazine, and on a coveted BuzzFeed site. Is all this pandemic publicity a result of your superior media skills honed during your years at Channel 4 or something else? No, I will say no. Um, I So we had one product that we launched with that we primarily sold on Amazon. And so over the last couple of years, I've been developing new products with really fabulous fabrics. It takes a long time, takes a lot of money. So our, our new products, the wraps and scarves came out in February. So we're sitting on all this inventory. And so we decided to go to a trade show. Lucky for me, the Travel Goods Association happened to be in New Orleans on March 4th and 5th. So we got ourselves a little pod at the trade show. And um, that's where the Los Angeles Times reporter was and the Washington Post reporter. So that was very, and they were really excited about what we were doing. Because of those two articles right away, we got a lot of sales on our website. And so I hired a publicist, a publicity firm out of Arizona, actually. I interviewed several firms. And then we got, they got us into BuzzFeed and Texas Lifestyles Magazine and Southern Voting. And so we've been getting a lot of um a lot of press and the BuzzFeed article, actually, we were number three on the 35 most awesome Mother's Day gifts that are 100% quarantine friendly. So even though we had positioned ourselves as a travel brand, because I figured people who are looking for bug repellent apparel, they, they don't want to get dengue fever while they're in Jamaica. They don't want to get malaria while they're in Africa, you know, yellow fever. I figured they'd be the savviest and they'd be looking for this product. But then when nobody was traveling, you know, again, I'm like, oh, so once they put it 100% quarantine friendly and it's a perfect gift idea because it's one size fits all all of a sudden it's you know just like oh great get your mom who's sitting on her porch getting eaten by mosquitoes go ahead and get her a wrap and so we sold out of two colors um, and then Texas Lifestyles magazine came out with an article that said here's the perfect gift to give a loved one to help them self-care this summer so it's a self-care gift it's a you know quarantine friendly gift so we were very um really, really, I mean, I don't know if it's luck, serendipity. It was weird, but it was great. Jennifer, like our old colleague, the late Larry Sherling used to say, chance favors a prepared mind. But, yes. but I'm just so curious how you, how you made this leap from journalism, which prepares you to do nothing um, but annoy all of humanity, <laughs> to, to being such a savvy business person. Where did you learn how to start a business and grow a successful business? Well, I left Channel 4. I actually went on maternity leave and then just never went back. So, but I, I, I really, I'm just, I wasn't very good at, you know, sitting still. So I started, you know, teaching at Loyola and Tulane media classes. And I started a video production company for about 15 years. And we did, you know, we did a lot of like sort of technical videos for companies explaining things. We, and we did some brand films, a little, a couple of commercials. And I made two documentary films while I was doing that. Really making a documentary by the time you raise the money and you hire the crew and you write the script and you do everything like that, it's essentially like starting a small business. The only big difference is that I made zero money. <laughs> they were great. It was fun. Makes doesn't make you any money. And so I think I've just been doing the production company for a long time and was just really looking to do something new. Um, and I'm just really into being outdoors. And so I was looking for a problem that I could solve. And I think, you know, getting it alive by bugs is a problem that we all live with. And um, so I just, I went with that. Jennifer, this is Peter. I, I've got to admit there are a lot of mosquitoes that are very angry at you, but, but, but keep it up. It's going gonna, it's gonna to work out. The, you know, you did something that a lot of people think about doing, but they don't. You said, I've kind of accomplished all I want from uh, broadcast journalism and I want to move on to something else. So we always, uh, you've always had a lot of energy. Have you? always had a lot of other business ideas. Like when you're interviewing me about the economy, were you secretly thinking about bug-free optimist pants? 
Yes, yes <laughs> I, I have. Actually, after Katrina, I had started the video production company and then Katrina hit. And of course, you know, as you know, everything went crazy. And so at that time, I came up with a business model. I was going to sell um, eco-friendly baby gifts online. So, and it was interesting because I did this whole business model. I got bids for a website. And it was, at the time, it was going to be between twenty dollars and $30,000 for me to just set up the website with all the back-end, you know, encrypted um, software that you need to make it safe for people to put in their credit card information. So there was a big barrier to entry for that kind of business even then. But at the same time, after Katrina, I got this huge contract with the Convention and Visitors Bureau to do a bunch of videos. So my production company really took off and I kind of tabled that idea. And now when I was thinking about what I was going to do, I'm like, baby gifts, <laughs> I'm over that. So I decided to do um, something else. So the thing that's really burning in my mind is if this stuff is like this magical mosquito repellent, this is Southern Louisiana, a place where you cannot go, you know, two feet without getting, you know, absolutely devoured by mosquitoes. Why don't we make everything out of insect shield? I mean, what is it about this material that like we can't just plug it in to, you know, my jeans, to this check shirt that I'm wearing? I mean, why isn't it everywhere? Um, I mean, it might be. That's why I'm trying to race to get, you know, the head start that I already have. But it, it's, um, I think a lot of people haven't heard of it. They don't know that it exists. Um, you could send your genes right now. You could treat them yourself at home. Like people who, when they send their kids to summer camp and they're worried about Lyme disease, they'll buy the little packs of the permethrin, that's the active ingredient, and they'll treat their kids' clothes. But it ends up washing out. So if you, so Insect Shield, they started for the, um, they were developed for the U.S. military because every year um, they would have like eight to 10 cases of Lyme disease for their recruits at West Point. And so after they developed, so they had Insect Shield develop this technology. So it's their proprietary formula. They're the way that they bind it to the fabric so it doesn't wash out for 70 washes. So, and they, and they will um, now license to different businesses. So it's out there. You just, you know, it's, I'm trying to take it a little bit more mainstream. And again, I want to I want to grow as fast as I can to stay at the head of the pack because, you know, we've been bootstrapping so far and we're seeing a lot of um, a lot of growth quickly. So we want to keep that momentum. Jennifer, what are your plans? Um, you know, besides the, the rapid growth, I mean, are you hoping to to cash out and sell the company in a couple of years? Are you still operating this out of your house? I mean, how, how is this all going i i am i i have a laundry room slash office slash guest room that is my uh place where i keep my things but i also have a big storage unit and so um yes very much bootstrapping right now i'm kind of over that and i really would like to you know we're looking into moving into another space um i think with growth we have a couple of reps you know a canadian rep apparently they have vicious big mosquitoes in canada who knew i did not know that and you know we have a rep in california who's trying to get us in the national park um gift shops, that kind of thing. So we want to go there. We're also in Amazon Australia now. So we're going overseas. We're going to see how that works out. And I think for me, because I'm not a journalist anymore, but I, I am a storyteller. That's what I'm passionate about. That's what I do. So I think that, you know, we have a blog, we make videos. I'm, I'm, we're going to launch a podcast pretty soon talking about outdoor adventure, that kind of thing. And so in a perfect world, um, I would focus on that aspect of it. You know, once the business gets to a certain point and then, um, and then, you know, have other people running the, you know, do the accounting and all that, that stuff that I really don't care that much about. Um, but yeah, of course, we, eventually we, we could sell. Absolutely. I mean, there's, you got to always have an exit strategy. And Jennifer, you make uh, all of this in the U.S. We've had so many people on the show that uh, design in the U.S., but they end up manufacturing it somewhere else. How have you been able to do it? 
Well, I think we set out to do it in the U.S. because, um, for, well, there's really three reasons. So number one, you have a smaller carbon footprint. So sustainability is a huge part of the brand. So if we're primarily selling in the U.S., we don't need it to be shipped halfway across the world. You know, um, so that's one thing. The other thing is I think um, we want to, of course, create American jobs or support American jobs. The other thing is that it kind of makes you more nimble. So the minimum order quantities are smaller. I can get you know, a small sample batch of yardage and have it in, in Los Angeles is where we have it made in our um, our facilities, by the way, they, you know, they pay a living wage with health benefits and pay, you know, paid time off, that kind of thing. So, and we can make, you know, 300 items of a product and see, just see if, does it sell? Whereas you go overseas and you're going to have much larger minimum order um, quantity requirements. So when you're looking ahead at, at the folks that are um, going to compete, right? When you're saying you're trying to get ahead of this sort of thing, I mean, but, but, you know, then we're also talking, it sounds like your, your costs might be kind of a little bit more expensive. I mean, how do you stay ahead of that? If you're not buying in the large batches, you know, scale is going to come to play once you kind of have more competitors in the market, right? Right. Well, we, we ordered, you know, about a little over 2000 units um, in February and, and we've almost sold out. So we, so when I reordered, I um, reordered without the little fees of the small batch production. So I'm trying, I'm already getting my, my margins up a little bit that way, but also we don't have the overhead of, you know, a bricks and mortar store. Um, as you know, they're struggling a lot of them. Um, and you know, that can, that can be 50, 60% of your overall operating budget is running a store. And so I think that we can stay lean and mean and still offer you know, good prices without um, sacrificing our profit margins. Jennifer John is founder and CEO of Peng Wangeljen. Thank you so much for joining us today on Out to Lunch, Louisiana. Thank you. This was fun. You're listening to Out to Lunch, Louisiana with Stephanie Regal and Baton Rouge, Peter Raschuti in New Orleans, and I'm Christian Mader in Lafayette. Over the course of the last few months of the pandemic, myself and other reporters have been asking what seems like an endless list of questions for which there are no known answers. How long will this economic downturn last? What happens when government assistance runs out? What is the future of education, of tourism, of entertainment, public spaces? The list goes on and on. But in the middle of all this uncertainty, there is one economic question we're going to get a definite answer to right now. And that question is, why, during a pandemic and its historic economic fallout, are bicycle sales through the roof? To answer that question, we're not turning to an economist or financial pundit. We're turning to Meg Arsenault, owner of Hub City Cycles in Lafayette. Meg, welcome to Out to Lunch. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Um, last time you were here was back in 2017, and since then, a lot has changed, especially over the last few months. And while the rest of the country has been struggling to stay in business, you've been struggling to keep up with business. So what's going on with bikes? Well, um, literally, we moved to a new location downtown about a block away from our old location one week prior to COVID. And so it was a lot of uncertainty when we moved, right? I was super nervous. And literally the next day, I had people lined up outside of my door waiting to get their bike fixed. And then everyone bought all the bikes that I had left in my shop. And then I bought 50 bikes. Then all those were gone in a week. And then I bought another 50. And then all those were gone. And in this last three months, I have sold more bikes than I do in a year. So it's just been incredible. Um, and then the, now we're out of bikes until probably mid-July. So we're just pre-ordering bikes right now. There are no bikes to be had. All the bike companies are out of bicycles. So you kind of dodged, I think, unintentionally my next question, which is like, it's summertime, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
which would make you think, okay, well, this is the time that people may be less inclined to go biking. At least that's the conventional wisdom. I was going to ask, will your bike sales slow down? And it seems like that is a moot question because you don't have any bikes to sell anyone. Um, it's, it's really wild because we are selling, we're still selling bikes every day. And actually Christian, our busiest time of the year is summertime. Um, kids are out of school. Parents want to get bikes because, and then kids need new bikes. They're outgrowing the last one. So summertime is definitely busy fall, um, spring, summer, fall, and then slows down January, February, of course. But we've been really blessed. A lot of, a lot of our sales are attributed to, um, repairs, um, we are right now, we, we just went from 18 days to about two weeks. Now we've kind of caught up with bicycle repair, if that's even catching up. Um, and we, we really had a formula from the get-go. We realized that we started doing small repairs every day from 11 to 12.30 that we could actually get more people through the door, right? And sort of keep up with it. And that has really helped us. A lot of people have been very stressed. A lot of bicycle shops are just, and we just really embraced it. I hired two new people. Um, and we just started rolling out. We just got got ahead of the, the curve, I guess, you know, and just didn't let it stress us out. Just like looked at it as, wow, look at us. This is the busiest we've ever been. Meaning and like gaining so many new customers as well. So we just hope that this continues after the COVID. But I don't think COVID's going anywhere. So I say bicycles are here to stay. And it's certainly been the same in Baton Rouge. I know the bike shops here have been slammed in the same sort of way what's the story on on the on the lack of supply i mean how long until the manufacturers are are able to catch up and get you the inventory that that you need well i mean i don't know if a lot of people know this but um bicycles are kind of like automobiles everything's been made in china since the late 70s everything kind of moved from america to overseas so they actually have made bikes we've had several crates of bikes i hold about a thousand bikes at a time come in but they're only allocating so many bikes per shop. And so um, fortunately we've been able to, you know, keep selling bikes, but um, it's like all the new bikes for 2021 will be out in August and then we won't have a shortage again. They'll just keep producing. So we're very fortunate with that, but it's a month of lull for sure that I've been dreading. I knew this time would come and um, I'm, it's really hard to convince some Cajuns why they don't have bikes and then why like, it's just, it's, it's a, we've never, we've never been in this, in this, Place before so it's all new to us as well as trying to explain to our customer hey I'm sorry you're gonna have to pre-order a bike no I'm sorry I don't have anything for you to sit on but if you don't pre-order this bike you won't have a bike till next year how do you tell someone that how do you sell that to somebody so um, we've been very we just you know we, we asked people to come in we've actually got to spend more time with people um, and explaining to them the process that we have to go through and how wild it is and, and just grateful for everyone's patience throughout this whole ordeal. Meg, this is uh, Peter in New Orleans. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your shop is uh, one of the reasons it's so popular is you have a huge, uh, you run the gamut in terms of pricing and, uh, and such. When I go to bike shops, I t they tend to be for, um, for lack of another term, bike geeks, you know, really high-end people that just all they want to talk about. How did you make that decision? Do you think eventually those people kind of move up the chain? Yes. Um, great question. Um, so my business plan was to be a neighborhood bike shop. Um, I didn't want to, I mean, I definitely can sell high-end bikes, but I can sell more bikes at a, you know, more affordable uh, price range, right? I'm only going to sell so many $2,000 bikes, but I can sell, shoot, I sold 50, $250 bikes. 
So, I mean, it's just supply and demand. Just figure it out whatever works for you. Now, building bikes is hard because there is, you know, bikes don't just come built, right? They come in a box. So you have to assemble them. And a lot of people don't understand is it takes a skilled, I mean, I have, I have heart, like people with 10, 15 years experience building these bikes and it still takes them probably around an hour to build these bikes. And so you also have to take into that into consideration into your profit, you know, your loss. And so selling low end bikes doesn't, I don't have a lot of profit there. Right. So, um, but yeah, we are a neighborhood bike shop. We also sell used bikes. Um, I'm out there. I'm, I'm searching for bikes every day at different places, you know, like uh, Craigslist and whatnot or Facebook market trying to find used bikes. I can bring it in, fix them up. So. So let me ask you a question about riding because I, I am a cyclist and I have been for years. And so when this happened, you know, I was, I was right there jumping on my bike. I ride it almost every day. And, and one of the articles that a Dutch cycling magazine posted in March that made the rounds on social media talked about the distance you have to be safely when riding with a group to avoid getting COVID. And it was something like basically a half a mile. I mean, and so all sorts of people, well, the guys I ride with didn't want to ride in a group anymore. Other people, maybe not so much, but I mean, do, is there any best practices? Is it safe, you know, during this pandemic to ride in a group? It doesn't seem to be bothering your customers apparently, but do you have any wisdom on that? Sure. I mean, stay with people you've been hanging out with throughout the COVID, your family, you know. Um, I know for us, we don't, we just see the same people. I mean, I'm, I'm in a shop that I go through probably seeing 30, 40 people a day. I wear a mask. I ask that my customers wear a mask. Is it hard? Yes. Not everyone wants to do it, but um, as long as you're outside, I think that you're safer, but get with your family, ride with them. Um, I mean, we have like a little group that we ride with, but we definitely stay distances when we stop. We're not like sitting next to one another. I mean, you can still practice social distancing on a bicycle. It's actually the easiest way, I believe. Meg, I mean, lastly, you kind of mentioned earlier that, you know, you look, you've hired a couple more people, you've, you've sustained more volume that you, you feel like it doesn't, you know, you said COVID seems like it's kind of here to stay, but we're all sort of hoping that it isn't. So, I mean, do you think that the things that are making people want to, you know, bike more during the pandemic or are, are going to stick around? Is that something you're counting on? Well, I, I hope that people learn from this whole thing. The silver lining is that everyone needs to slow down. They need to put down, you know, their phones or whatever. And there's people right next to you to hang out with. And I think a lot of people discovered that. I don't know about for y'all, but I would drive around. I was picking up bicycles too in neighborhoods to, to repair. And I was driving around. I would see families outside. I haven't seen that. Neat. I mean, since I was young. Like people biking, people hanging out outside, like playing basketball with the kids. So yes, I hope that this does stick around. I hope that we can all, you know, be outside more. You know, that's what I'm hoping for. I mean, I hope COVID is gone as well. I mean, but we all know that it's hard. I don't see a lot of people with masks on and we know how it's spread, right? So let's see. Yeah, we, we all hope that the pandemic goes away, but maybe that we stay connected. Um, Meg, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Meg Arsenault is the owner of Hub City Cycles in Lafayette. Thanks for being on Out to Lunch. Thanks for having me, guys. And thank you for joining us for this edition of Out to Lunch, Louisiana. At some point, we're going to go back to hosting Out to Lunch around the lunch table. Mansour's on the Boulevard in Baton Rouge is open. You can eat at the restaurant where they have 50% occupancy and outdoor dining or get pickup. In New Orleans, Commander's Palace is closed, but you can have a range of ready-to-cook items shipped from Commander's Kitchen to yours anywhere nationwide. Information is at goldbelly.com. 
our Lafayette Out to Lunch restaurant, the French Press, is doing curbside takeout. You can pick up their regular menu items or a family dinner, and you can get delivery through Waiter or Grubhub. Out to Lunch Louisiana is a production of INO Broadcasting. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical director is Eric Merle. Photos from this show on our website and social media are taken by Jill LaFleur. I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge. I'm Christian Nader in Lafayette. And I'm Peter Raschuti in New Orleans. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you back here next week for more Out to Lunch Louisiana. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by... Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. 